Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women leave the workforce when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. But in this show, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas. I would say to young women who are starting off is don't be afraid to take a risk and do something that scares you. It may not always work, but when it does, you're going to feel so good about it and good about yourself. That was today's guest. Erin McCoy Allercombe. Erin is the owner of Clearview Mediation and Consulting. A practicing attorney, Erin rose the ranks to become a partner at Mellick and Porter LLP before embarking on a new journey as a business owner specializing in mediation. In our conversation, she shared how entrepreneurship became the option that made the most sense for her and her family as she and her husband worked to raise three young boys. She also discussed lifelong learning as a form of self-care, the impact that words really have on children's development and what doing something every day that scares you can look like. If you don't mind just taking a few minutes and describing where you are today and a little bit about what your life is like today, and then help us understand your path to get there. Okay. So today I operate a mediation and consulting business. Um, To get to that, I started, went to law school right out of college, Um, was always really interested in conflict resolution, but wasn't quite sure how to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for 16 years, I was a litigator and it's a great adrenaline rush and I really enjoyed what I was doing. But then some of my family circumstances really got me thinking about that maybe this isn't the right place for me to be anymore Mm. um, because there were other things that were more important than being in a courtroom and fighting, frankly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) with people. So, you know, and those things where I have married to my husband now for over 19 years. We have three boys, a high schooler, a middle schooler, and a a grade schooler. Our high schooler is on, he has Asperger's, he's on the autism spectrum, and totally thriving. He's super bright and Mm -hmm. such a fun kid. Our middle schooler is neurotypical and, you know, super athletic and doing great in school. And our six-year-old is also on the autism spectrum, but a much more severe presentation than his older brother. Mm. And so it was around, so he was born in 2012 and around 2014, you know, he was two and he wasn't really talking. And so then it really, you know, became clear that I needed to be focusing really on him and how to help him. And it was really challenging to be a litigator in a law firm even at that point, I was I had gone to three days a week, and it was still really challenging to do that. You know, so I continued doing that for a couple of years, and around 2016, 
you know, I'd always kind of had this idea in the back of my head that I, I am meant to be a mediator and how do I make this work? And my husband and I had a conversation and he said, I think you just need to do it. Mm. And it sounded like to both of us, like it would be a really good way for me to focus on something that I'm really passionate about in terms of my career while also making my schedule be a little more flexible. You know, so today I have this business, actually this afternoon, I'm, I'm driving up to Manchester, New Hampshire, and I'm going to be in small claims court up there doing a series of mediations. But then in, you know, a couple, two, three days a week in the afternoons, I'm at home when David gets off the bus and we do ABA with him here at home, you know, take him to whatever services he needs. My husband's job, he does a fair amount of traveling. So it also made sense for me to be the one because I'm more consistently here than he is. And sometimes, you know, it's pretty short notice and he has to travel. Mm. And that's where we are now. Yeah. And so when you were in the litigation practice, what, what were some, or if you don't mind sharing some examples of, you know, what just made that so difficult to, to find the balance? You know, I, I think a lot of people don't know what a day in the life of a litigator looks like. Sure. Well, you're kind of at the beck and call of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if there's a hearing scheduled, you can, you know, try to work with the other side to get things ske- rescheduled to fit your schedule, but it doesn't always work. And so it would often be challenging with, you know, we'd ha- I'd have something, a hearing or something scheduled that I have to get to that would conflict with, you know, especially if Mike was out of town, how do I right. get the kids to all the different schools? And I have to make sure that I'm, you know, at this court, which may be, you know, an hour away by a certain time and make sure that I get back in time to, you know, get everybody off the bus or pick them up for, you know, initially it was get back by six o'clock so your kids don't get put in the bad parent room at daycare. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, you know, things like if you're in, you know, this happens with mediation now, but because things are more flexible and it's not every day for me, I can sort of, I can make it work better. But if I was an advocate in mediation and, you know, you get down to the 11th hour and suddenly you're making movement because a lot of times that's the way, that's the way the mediations work is that, you know, it's kind of stagnant until all of a sudden people are like, okay, I have to be out of here in an hour. And then people start really moving. But you get down to that last hour and you need to have some flexibility to be able to stay an extra half hour, an hour and wrap things up. So there aren't mm-hmm. any loose ends. And so that was really challenging to be on the, you know, texting or on the phone with Mike and saying, okay, I'm here, but I'm not going to make it back in time. And the kids have to get picked up from after school or from daycare. And so, you know, those were a couple of the things uh, that really played into it. And then frankly, some of it was just the stress of managing litigation caseload. Right. And, you know, having, you know, lots of lots of different balls in the air all day, but also really wanting to make sure that you're doing your best for your children, all of them. And then, you know, really making sure that you're doing what needs to be done to take care of the ones who have some extra special needs too. Right. And so now you're, you have your own practice, which is actually really entrepreneurial. Can you share a little bit about what, what that is like from a business perspective and how it impacts your, your current home life? Sure. Uh, it was maybe one of the scariest things I ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, to initially start that because you don't know, you know, where it's going to go or if it's going to work out. And there's all of that, you know, I think in amongst women, particularly, 
there's been a lot more focus recently on talking about what that, you know, that voice inside that we we shouldn't listen to that tells us, you know, well, they won't want to hire you. And, and so I had a lot of that in my head and I had to really work through, well, no, I'm, I'm good at this. Um, this is what I meant to do and people will want to hire me. But it made it really scary at the outset. And it certainly, I don't think any, at least for me, that voice is never going to completely go away. Um, but I have to challenge myself every day to not listen to it because it, it's lying to me. I know. Um, I think we all have those voices. And I know I spend, I try to spend time in meditation, like focusing on dissolving them, <laughs> but they're, they're, they do come back and I don't know where they come from, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that was a challenge first off. And then, I mean, I'd never run a business before. So then, so, you know, I did a lot of reading and research before I started about not just how to launch a business, but what are some of the pitfalls that you might... So I kind of had a, I had a roadmap for, I wrote, sat down and wrote a business plan. You know, I had a roadmap for how I was going to launch it, how it was going to get started, and then my goal. And one thing that I do every six months or so is sit down and go through those goals and try to revamp. Mm. And, you know, where, okay, which ones haven't I met? Why haven't I met them? What, what do I need to change to try to meet them? Or maybe those aren't goals that I want to meet anymore. Maybe they weren't the right goals. And so set some new ones so that it's always, you know, it's always a changing landscape. But the idea is that it's always developing and moving forward, you know, and then just I guess one of the biggest challenges of owning a business is drumming up the clientele. And so that's been I can schedule mediations, you know, I can be flexible, schedule things around other things like I need to. But there are some times when I have to say, no, you know what, there's this event and there are people that are going to be there that I need to talk to. And so I can't be flexible about this. And luckily I have a partner who's really supportive of that. Yeah. So and that so where, can... where does one get clients for mediation? I, I you know, I've, <laughs> I've been in the entrepreneurial world for a while and that's not an area I've ever thought about because it seems to be one of those things that it, it like on the other side, it seems like something that you go find when you need it. And I, and I had yeah. never thought about it from the flip of, well, how do you just build a client list knowing what challenges people might be having. Right. So uh, a lot of my clients come through word of mouth. A lot of them are attorneys that I worked with when I was litigating cases Mm -hmm. or that I've served with on various organizations that I've served on boards. I also go to local chamber of commerce events. There's some women networking organizations that I belong to. And I go to, I try to go to as many you know, luncheon type or evening cocktail hour type events that I can. And I set a goal for myself because I'm an introvert. So Mm. actually going to these kind of things is really challenging for me because I'm not the kind of person who's going to be like, hi, I'm Erin. Let me tell you about my business. So I set a goal for myself. I'm going to go to this event. I'm going to meet three people today. I'm going to give my card to three people and get cards from them. And then I'm going to follow up with them within X number of days, either by phone or, you know, sending a note to them or an email, something like that. And that seems to have worked well for me. And I also try to, if I can get a list in advance, I try to, of who's going to be there, I try to do that in the larger, you know, for larger like conference events, I try to take a look, get the list in advance and take a look because then I can kind of see, oh, you know, this is an attorney who handles, you know, this kind of case. And I really want to 
focus on getting more mediations in that area. And so I can kind of make sure I know that person's going to be there. I want to find them and talk to them. Got it. I mean, that sounds, it's it's funny because it sounds exactly the way everyone does sales, no matter, or, or client relationship building, you know, it's getting those leads, networking, following yeah. up, looking for referrals. Do you mind sharing, you know, I think where you are today is where a lot of women would aspire to be. A lot of people would aspire to be that you've got your own business, that you're practicing, you know, law, which is something that you obviously studied for. But, you know, what did that path look like along the way? So I graduated from Mount Holyoke College in 1998. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and <laughs> so uh, law was not really anything that was on my radar when I went to college. I was a double math and economics major. When I first started, I actually had started at a different college and then transferred to Mount Holyoke. I thought I was going to be an actuary. Mm-hmm. So when I was in college, though, at Mount Holyoke, I took some classes that just really shaped the way that I was looking at the world and realized that while I, I've always been very good at math, it comes pretty easy to me, I enjoy doing it, that the things that we struggle with as a society around law and politics were really, I was more passionate about that. Mm-hmm. One class in particular that I took that actually led me to decide to apply to law schools was law and politics and racism. And it just it really opened my mind and got me thinking, and the professor was fantastic. I ended up doing an independent study with him the following semester, and I'm still in touch with him. And I started talking to him and to a couple other professors about, maybe I want to go to law school. You know, And when I you know, backtrack to when I was in eighth grade, I remember saying to a teacher, I might like to be a lawyer someday, because I had been part of the debate team, mm-hmm. and was told, well, you have to you have to major in like English or or you know politics or social studies history to be a lawyer and you're a you're a math kid and that one comment just had me you know well I guess being a lawyer isn't and so I never thought about it again so there I am and I isn't that interesting how much power words have at that age too absolutely Yeah. yeah absolutely so I called my parents and said I think this is really crazy I either I have decided that I'm either going to go to divinity school or I'm going to go to law school. And I have applications for both here and I have the forms to take the GRE and the LSAT. I can't decide which one. I can't do both. And, you know, lots of conversations. For me, my my faith has always been really important. So I'm a preacher's kid. Mm -hmm. um, So it's always been kind of, you know, a really strong foundation in my life since I was little. So a lot of prayer and conversation with my dad. And he said, well, uh, my consensus is I had to make the same decision, divinity school or law school, and I chose divinity school. And I think that you should consider law school. You can always go back to divinity school. Oh, interesting. Um, so, you know, and that definitely played a big part in my decision making. I chose a law school that is focused on social justice work nonprofit work and uh, at Northeastern University Mm -hmm. and really enjoyed everything I did there. Mount Holyoke taught me to think. And so while some people I have heard, I've heard a lot of people say that law school was really hard for them. Law school was challenging for me, but in a way that I really enjoyed it. Hmm. I never found, I didn't find it to be hard, but I always wanted to challenge myself more. And the great thing about Northeastern is that it's they do a co-op program. So you get a full year's of experience 
by the time you graduate from law school because you do four quarters of cooperative education work where you're actually working as like an intern. And so that was a really great experience for me. I was not going to be a litigator. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sure. You know, I thought I was going to work, interestingly, I really thought that I was going to work doing some kind of disability rights advocacy work. Okay. And then the reality of having attended a private law school and having loans set in and realized, okay, I need to find a job that is going to pay me enough to be able to pay off these loans. And I can pursue those other interests in a way advocationally. So through, you know, volunteer work, other work that I do. Mm -hmm. So I took a class my last year of law school with a professor because I really liked the professor. That was really the only reason I took the class. And it was advanced uh, trial advocacy. And I really fell in love with the trial work mm. and realized that I was really good at thinking on my feet. And so I, from there, I went and clerked for the Superior Court in Massachusetts and got to know three different judges really well for that. Got to see what happens in a courtroom when people come and they argue motions in the courtroom and they argue trials and you know, the stuff that you see on TV about trials, it doesn't ever, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and I often tell my clients, you know, when I was working with them and getting them ready for either a deposition, which is where you sit down and the lawyer asks you questions and there's a stenographer that writes down all the answers. And that takes place before the trial, um, but it's all under oath. You know, before that or getting ready to go and testify in a trial, I would, I would always tell them, okay, a few good men you can't handle the truth kind of moment doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't work like law and order. So and kind of temper those expectations because what we see on TV is really different. But it is interesting, right? That I, I think I read somewhere that until the shows like that were around, there were fewer law applicants because there were simply nothing for younger women to model on. So maybe oh. some people got the wrong idea from, you know, the, the, the dramatic unrealistic ways in which things play out. But it is interesting to see the impact of having just someone who looks like you in a in a television role, potentially. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Because when I started law school, it was when Allie McBeal was on TV. There um, you go. <laughs> and so there were women that I was watching <laughs> in that role and the practice too. Those were two shows. And then I took evidence and my husband wouldn't watch them at me anymore because I'd object. I'd sit in our living room going, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, so, I was talking to someone actually not too long ago who's at, who was a lawyer at a company I used to work for. And she was saying how, you know, she, when she looked at her career path going back, if she could have picked a different path, it would have been a, a career in math. So I just thought it was interesting when you were talking oh. about that because she said, you know, so much more, you know, about the legal work is about being able to do a proof for all intents and purposes. And to she, for her, she saw a lot of correlations to math. Do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that really came out when I started working for some. So after I clerked, I went and I worked for a few different law firms, a couple, you know, a couple years at a couple different places, and then 11 years or so at another place, quite a while at the last place I was with. And I still do some contract work for that firm now. And what I found there is a lot of the cases have economic claims. You know, it's about money and lost wages and lost future wages. And I, I did a lot of employment work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like discrimination cases, sexual harassment cases. So there's a lot of stuff in there about, well, you know, I lost my job. 
so I've got X number of dollars of lost wages from that. But then I found another job and I'm only making $15,000 or I'm making $15,000 less than I was, but I needed a job. So I had to take this. So then there's the whole calculation of, you know, over time, present value of money versus future value of money. If, if somebody who is self-employed, um, in personal injury cases, this comes up where somebody gets injured, they're self-employed, they can't run their business anymore. So what's the future value of what they were earning mm. in their business? What could they have expected to earn? And what I found was that having had that math and economics background from college is that I can actually talk, we have to, we, we use a lot of experts because if it's something that anybody, you know, just your average guy or gal off the street is probably not going to know about, then in trials, you want to have an expert in that field, be able to explain it to the jury. So economic experts are used fairly frequently, particularly in cases where you have self-employed people who have for one reason or another, have had to stop their business. Um, and I found that I could really communicate with the experts because I understood already mm -hmm. the theory and the math behind what they were talking about. You know, and then the other thing is I, I would see putting together a case for trial as a puzzle. So there's lots of pieces that need to come together to make those connections for the jury so that the jury can really easily say, oh, A plus B equals C. And I think that the logic from math theory and from economic theory helps me be able to understand how to put those pieces together for people. Got it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Do you mind helping me understand a little bit more about what mediation is? Like, where does, when does that happen? Who, who would, who uses a mediator? Sure. Mediation is well, as, so as a mediator, I don't tell people what to do. I don't make decisions for them. I help facilitate a conversation between the parties to get them to a place where they can come up with an agreement. So it's really about guiding the conversation in a healthy and respectful way. You know, most times there's lots of different ways that mediation can come up. It's it's a, it's applicable, I think, across the board in everybody's life. But let's take a couple examples. So one would be if somebody has filed a lawsuit against their employer for discrimination. At some point, the parties, it could be before the actual lawsuit is filed. They've just said, I have this claim and I'm going to file a lawsuit. And it could be after a lawsuit's filed and all the way up until trial starts. The parties may say, you know what, let's try to resolve this case, mostly because I think most people want to do that because it's costing them so much time, money, and angst mm -hmm. in either prosecuting it or defending it. And the statistics are around for, for employment discrimination cases that on average it costs like seventy-five dollars to $100,000 to pursue a case through trial, not including any appeals. And so it can be much more cost effective to try to resolve it early on. And that's when people would call me and I sit down with the parties. And I listen. I mean, a large part of mediation is just listening to people and really hearing what their perspective is. It's not about truth finding. You know, I'm not a an arbitrator is a or a judge. They're the ones who are going to listen to the facts and make a decision about what's the truth and what's not the truth. But my job is to help people facilitate that conversation and help people see where the other side is coming from. Um, and so, you know, I do that with all sorts of cases, personal injury cases, employment cases, family cases involving d divorce or mm -hmm. um, parenting plans. I find that 
in employment and parenting, there's a lot of, this, of similar emotions involved. It's very personal to people. Uh, there's often a lot of hurt feelings. And I find that it's very helpful for people to have somebody who's really listening to them and to what their needs and their interests are. And a lot of times when people say, I need X because of Y, it's not they may need X, but there may be, you know, there's probably some other underlying issue. It's not necessarily the reason that they're voicing. And so a lot of what I do with people is kind of explore what are those underlying issues and try to help the other side see this is where that side's coming from and vice versa. And then if someone is going through the process of mediation, let's say to avoid the lengthy court case and whatnot, um, you know, how long does mediation usually take? That's a good question. It's hard to answer. <laughs> so, so for example, it, it really varies. So like in a small claims case, which might be, you know, you're my, my neighbor got, cut down my tree without got my permission. Okay. okay. And now the question is, what's the value of the tree? Or is there something else that the neighbor can do for the neighbor whose tree got cut down to help make them feel close to whole again? Those, like the ones I'm going to be doing this afternoon, might be a half an hour long. They're they're quick, usually. Okay. <laughs> I've had some small ones, small claims mediations that have lasted a lot longer than a half an hour. But employment cases, I've been involved in mediations that have lasted a couple of days. Wow. Where you go all day one day and then you find another day and come back again. But that's you still know, obviously so it, much shorter than, to your point, a, a lengthy law case and trial and all that absolutely. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of value in finality because if you mediate something and you resolve it and you have a settlement agreement and everybody knows what the expectations are about what's going to come out of that settlement and who's going to do what, then you don't have to worry about taking something and you don't have to worry about a judge saying this evidence gets in, this evidence mm -hmm. doesn't get in, the jury hears this, doesn't hear this. You don't have to worry about 12 people that you've ever never met and who don't know anything about you listening to the evidence and reading the evidence and coming up with a decision. So now your kids are ranging from high school to grade school. So okay. some, you know, you're, and I, you know, I have a high schooler and a, and a middle schooler and I feel like it's actually getting, for me, it's getting easier as the kids are getting older and they're more independent and, and it's it's fun with boys. But grade school, I always found, you know, there's just a lot to juggle and, you know, your little one has, you know, more demands that, uh, you know, just based on, you know, what's going on with your family. And you had made it all the way to what people strive for, right, to become a partner in a firm and you had become a partner in a firm. At what point, just timing wise, did you decide to go out on your own? Was that when your youngest was still a toddler or was that when you're like, where were your kids developmentally when you made that call? My youngest was about, was almost four. Okay. And yeah, I mean, a large part of it was one component was the length of experience that I'd had. I'd been practicing for 16 years and, you know, finally felt like I, I had, had enough experience that I had something to give and to offer in my own, you know, through my own practice. Mm -hmm. You know, and then part of it was because that was the point where David, my youngest, his symptoms, his manifestations of autism, his 
speech delay were really, it was really a critical point and that he needed a lot of intensive services. Right. And you, and sometimes when we talk about leaning in, there's this idea that you can outsource everything in your life. Right? Like, and you know, I, I think that's actually just, a, that's, a, that's very difficult for people to do. And is that how you felt like that it was just going to be too hard to try to think about how do you outsource all of this care and how do you manage everything at the same time? Or I think for me, it was more, it wasn't so much that it would be hard. I, right? I could have found somebody who would drive David to speech in the morning when he needed to go to speech, um, who you know, or who could be at ABA therapy with him. But one of us, either Mike or I, really needed, there was a learning curve for us too. Mm. And we, I really was, I really felt strongly that one of us needed to be present at those things. We needed to know firsthand what was happening, really so that we could model the same stuff that was going on in speech therapy so that we could model that stuff at home so that there's consistency. Right. Um, same thing with ABA. I'm still learning. You know, I meet twice a week. He has a couple hours of ABA therapy at our house. I'm still learning stuff from it. In fact, yesterday, his ABA therapist arrived at the house and I said, I need you. I need help. And one, it might be unfair to have somebody who's not his parent be take, have to take on that responsibility and then convey it to us. And two, I wouldn't, Mike and I wouldn't be able to parent as actively as we want to be able to parent if we're not there firsthand getting that. Got it. And for those who aren't in the, you know, have all the acronyms down, what does ABA stand Sorry. for? Applied Behavioral Analytics. Thank you. Well, we knew each other when we were really little and obviously we've reconnected in the last few years. And when right. I look at your path, it's so it's incredibly impressive and it looks like you've sort of checked all the boxes, you know, all the way to a partner at a law firm and now your own mediation offices. You know, if you were going back in time or if you were encountering a younger woman today or even your eighth grade self, what advice mm. would you give? Oh, take a risk. Mm. I, so uh, one of the things that I do for myself is when I was, I was talking about doing those check, regular check-ins on my business, I write down something that I'm going to give myself permission to do. So right now, the things that I'm giving myself permission to do on a weekly basis are to do something scary. So, you know, for me, that's sometimes that's business-wise, that's making a cold call to somebody who I really respect and I know from the community, but I've never met, but I want to develop a relationship with them. Or asking somebody for, for a referral can sometimes be scary. So I give myself permission to take a risk and do something scary. And I give myself permission to do something for myself. So, for example, I just I just discovered the Harvard EDX online course programming. I had no idea what this was until yesterday. Okay. Um, but there's a ton of free online courses, college courses that you can take. And I'm a total geek. I read all the time. I love learning new stuff. I'm super into trivia. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I decided yesterday that I'm going to enroll in a world religions class because that's something I'm really interested in. It's an online class. It's, you know, self-paced. Um, it may take me three weeks to get through it all. It may take me three months, but I'm going to do that. I'm giving myself permission to do that for me. That's what I would say to young women who are starting off is don't be afraid to take a risk and do something that scares you. It may not always work, but when it does, you're going to feel so good about it and good about yourself. Uh, and to be willing to do things for yourself and take care of yourself because you can't, especially as parents, we can't take care of other people unless we take care of ourselves. That was a really hard lesson for me to learn. 
That's incredibly valuable feedback and or advice. And one of the, you know, one of the things we've been talking about and some of the other folks have mentioned too, is I think sometimes there's a, a media perception or something out there that tells us that taking care of ourselves means going to the spa or getting our hair done. And I love your point that you're, you're taking care of yourself by continuing to learn and by continuing mm-hmm. to expand you know, thing, your areas of interest. And isn't it interesting that your dad had said, you know, you can always go back to <laughs> divinity and here you are about to take a course in that. Right. And in terms of taking a risk and when you feel, you know, obviously a lot of people have talked about, you know, do something that scares you. Um, and I think you've really articulated what that sometimes can look like. Cause w- what is the fear in calling someone, right? That they're going to say no or. Exactly. Yeah. And also, I think as women, we're socialized to think that everybody needs that everybody needs to like us, or we need everyone to like us. And there's two components to that. One is that it's okay if not everybody likes you, you know. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn too. I, you know, I don't, you don't need to be friends or have everybody be friends with you. And that it's not a personal affront to you if somebody doesn't want to hire you, right? Like people hire people because they have different connections with different people and that just because somebody decides that they don't want to work with you doesn't mean that you're you don't have self-worth or value Um, and yeah yeah that's great advice I mean I think and and to both of those points I know that it took me most of my adult life to realize that when you're encountering what feels like judgment or issues from someone else, often that's something that they're dealing with, right? And you're just pic- yeah. picking up their own, they're projecting onto you. And so, you know, to, uh, trying to be kinder to people who sometimes are judging or, is actually a weird way of dealing with things sometimes. But to your point, you don't need to be friends with everyone. And and the job, the job point is really, I think, valid and interesting because I personally think ultimately you'll if you keep trying and focusing on something you're passionate about and that you believe you're solving a real problem the right clients or the right customers are going to be there for you would you ever have predicted you would be where you are today when you were 18 no no <laughs> <laughs> when i was 18 i was traveling to study abroad for a year you know living completely immersed in a small town in Spain where there was nobody else who really spoke English. And I wasn't thinking about, I was thinking about making sure that I could get through that day of school. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, no, I had, I did not think I would end up here. But what is really, what is really interesting is that when I think back, you know, someone recently asked me, when was the first time you had a mediation experience? And aside from like with friends in school, which I never really thought of as mediation, and I still don't, uh, when I was, I, I was a resident assistant in college. And I don't think we called it mediating, but part of our training was how to sit down and talk to roommates who were having a disagreement. Mm. And as I look back now, I, I love, I really loved those conversations. The first one went so horribly. I actually had one student throw a cup of soda at her roommate during oh the middle God. of our conversation. Did she they're, hit her? Still, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. All over her. They're still oh friends. My gosh. As far as I know, they're still friends. <laughs> but I mean, they, they, they work through it. Um, and I guess that kind of goes to the point that you know, you can be really good at things and it still doesn't go great sometimes and that's okay. But I, 
I really enjoyed working with people in that way. And I didn't think of it as mediation. Right. So like now I looking back, all, in- yeah, like now looking back, all the dots connect, but you could never yeah. have told someone this is the path. This is how you get there. Not, yeah, absolutely. I thought of it more as ministry wow. at that point. Wow. Well, I, you know, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to share, you know, some of your story with me. And I, I'm confident that especially younger women listening will be inspired by just the dedication you have to your career, but also the idea that you, you've stepped in and out um, and you found a path that works for you and for your family and you're making an impact. Is there any a website or any place that you would like people to know about um, that they should they can find out more about what you do? Uh, sure. My website is clearviewmediation-consulting.com. And I'm also they can also search at Clearview Mediation Consulting on Facebook. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Erin. I really appreciate Thank your you, time Claudia. today. That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website at the43percent.com, or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening, and have an awesome week. 